Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? Good morning, David. I'm doing great. And I, I, I should say we're not in my office this week, so hopefully the sound will be a little we bit better. We are in our usual recording studio. Uh, Here at Cogliano Towers. Exactly. <laughs> right. So the sun is shining. It is summertime. People are going on vacation. Uh, for many people, this is the first vacation that they've taken in a couple of years as the pandemic has, has laid waste to the summer vacation uh, trip uh, uh, industry, but but it seems like holidays are, are booked all over the place, and airports are packed, and roads are packed, and everything. So we thought we would talk about about luggage vac- is lost. Luggage, oh, don't I'm <laughs> flying tomorrow, so I'm worried about that. Frank, Thanks. flights are canceled. canceled. Oh, jeez, I'm gonna get stuck in Reykjavik or something. Anyway, um, so we thought we'd talk about the history of summer vacation and and try to sort of make sense of uh, how Americans in the past have celebrated or not celebrated summer vacation. Okay, so in this context, we will say vacation as opposed to going on holiday because we're talking about this uh, the summer uh, leisure activities in the in the United States yes. as opposed to the UK. Although I have I have an interesting uh, explanation for why we use different words for that, but I'll get to that. All right, good. So, okay, so, good. Uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, David. Let me begin by as I want to put a question to you, and this is actually vitally important to me, as you'll see. <laughs> okay. well, vitally important might be an exaggeration. When is summer? When do you consider summer? So I've been in education in one form or another my whole life, you know, either as a student or as a high school teacher or as, as a academic at a university. So my summer is defined by the academic calendar. So that's when I think so. So whenever school is end over, that's when summer begins. Whenever school starts again, that's when summer ends which I realize has nothing necessarily to do with the actual, like, solar calendar and whatnot, but that, that's my understanding of what summer is. Summer is about that time when school is not meeting. Okay, I mean, I'm broadly in agreement with you on that, although that means summer is much shorter than all the other seasons. Well, it depends on where I'm going to school and what the academic calendar is there. So some places I have a long summer and some places I have a shorter summer. Um, okay, well, I, 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 I mean, I, I think the academic year is important, and we'll, okay. we'll return to that in a second. But I think there are two main choices. Mm. So having asked you the question, I'm going to say, okay, well, what are your, what, what's your Well, I, I think you, you, you've got, again, in the U.S. context, uh, you know, the traditional dates for summer are oriented around holidays. And I'm using holiday in the American sense here, mm. not, not the British sense. So, you know, summer is usually said to begin with Memorial Day at the end of May and end with... Uh, Labor Day in the beginning of September. Yes. So that I, I think most people in the U.S. would recognize the days that fall in between those two holidays and those holiday weekends, crucially, those are bracketed by mm. long weekends, as as summer. Sure. And I think that's fine. I, I, in fact, I'm quite sympathetic to that. It's not internationally recognizable and transferable. No, And it's as not. transnational folk like ourselves, that might be problematic. The other option, it would seem to me, would be going from the solstice, starting with the summer solstice on June 21st. Yes. It's a big deal here in Edinburgh because we have a nice long day then. And then ending with the equinox on September 21st. Those all seem like fine dates. David, you're being too agreeable. People. I want you to stake Stake a, a, stake a so, Sorry, sorry. Let me explain my stake in this, though. Okay, what's your stake because in this? Because as, as okay, you... This is, now we'll get the real... Now we're getting to the real point. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, this, yeah, this is the subtext. <laughs> I mean, this whole podcast is an, is an exercise in self-indulgence, after all. As you may know, David, I am married to a sweet, 
Yes, yes, I'm, I'm well aware. That, as are most of our listeners. Yes, and this okay. is an ongoing debate. Indeed, we're now on our fourth decade of this debate um, as to when summer is. Because in Sweden, hmm. uh, June 21st is always referred to as midsummer and is a massive national holiday. Sure. I mean, it's a massive... Have, it, people may have seen the movie, right? right. Yes. It's a nas- <laughs> but it's a national holiday like Christmas. Yes. I mean, this is something every, where everybody, you know, marks this. And in that context, and it, then um, so, so we have an ongoing fight about this, an ongoing argument where I say it's impossible for that to be midsummer. It can't be the middle of summer, no matter how you reconcile. Mm. But uh, I, I've I, th- th- there is no resolution in sight to this argument. So I'm asking your views on this. I, I, I'm going to be generous and yeah. say that that it's that it could be culturally dependent. That it is the day in which there is the most sun. So it is if, if if summer is when the sun is out, that is the day when there is the most sun out. It doesn't matter. Of course, it, it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. <laughs> well, and, and 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 if and this goes back to your being culturally specific in the academic calendar. Mm. If now they get much longer holidays there than we mm. do in the United States. Uh, but but if they they usually go back to school in early August because it's starting to feel autumnal mm. uh, by early August, and therefore. The summer is much more truncated, so sure. I, 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 mean, I honestly yes. don't really care. But uh, I'm sympathetic in the U.S. context to the Memorial Day to Labor Day uh, view. I think it makes more sense to use the uh, solstices and equinoxes to measure the season. So you go from June 21st to September 20th, September 21st to December 20th, December 21st to March 20th, March 21st well, to June 20th. Sure. But I think in some ways that the the entire idea of of not summer as a season but summer vacation as being somewhat distinct from the rest of the year, I think that's actually a actually a relatively recent innovation, historically speaking, and it's shaped in large part by the school calendar. That for most people, for most of American history, you don't get any part of the summer off. That summer isn't a, a break from working. It is, you know, just like any other day of the year. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, we're back to it being culturally specific. Yeah, right. In which case, the Swedes are right because they defined it as they want to define it. Yeah. And who am I to tell them otherwise? Um, <laughs> heaven forfend. So if we're if we're if we're going with the school calendar, mm. it is widely believed. Mm that summer vacation was created around the agricultural calendar. Is this true, David? No, it's not true. Thank you. Okay. I teed you up. So tell okay. us why that's wrong. Well, so, and you will hear that myth repeated a lot. A lot. Like a even lot. by like secretaries of education have said things like this, which is, um, and the story of how we ended up with the current sort of standard quote unquote academic calendar in the United States is, is a complicated one. I'll try to give the sort of briefest version I can. So in the 19th century, they're just the important century for, for everything, as we know, um, there were lots of different school calendars depending on where you lived. Uh, if you were in, in rural spaces, they often had two seasons uh, of, of schooling. You had a season during the middle of the summer and a season during the middle of the winter, a session during the each. And that's actually what the agricultural calendar depends on. Um, having a summer and winter session, not a summer off. Because the time when you need the most farm labor is in the spring when you do your planting and in the, in the autumn when you do the harvesting. The summer, depending on what you're growing, 
is actually a, can be a slightly down season. So that's when uh, farm kids would have been going to school. Stuff's growing. Exactly, right? You sort of let it grow. You the corn's doing whatever it's doing. Um, in urban schools, though, you had a very different situation in which school was basically year-round. Um, in New York City, schools were open yeah, in 1842, uh, 248 days a year, which is 60 days more a year than they're open today. Two months. <laughs> yeah. It's also, I mean, and Detroit. Two full months. In Detroit, the academic, the same year, uh, the academic year lasted 260 days. So, you know, it was basically year-round school. Now, there wasn't compulsory education. So kids would be coming in and out of schools, these city schools, willy-nilly, whether they, you know, if, they, if, they're, if their parents didn't let them, if the kids weren't working. Obviously, this is an era in which child labor was, was pretty endemic. Uh, and so, you know, in the era before compulsory education, you do have schools that are open pretty in the cities pretty much year-round, but kids are coming and going uh, on an irregular basis. And one of the things that happened with those city schools in the 1860s and through the sort of middle part of, of, of the 19th century uh, is that increasingly the cities became very, very hot in the summer as cities became more and more populated. Schools became less and less pleasant places to be and cities became less and less pleasant to be. So all the wealthy people left the city. So there's this huge phenomenon of people leaving New York and Philadelphia and other cities in the summertime because they're not pleasant places to be to go to cooler climbs in the mountains or in the beaches or where have you the schools were empty and the schools decided it isn't worth our effort to be open in the summer when when so many of the students were were absent um and then as you by the end of the 19th century when you start to get compulsory education and you have school rural and urban school districts try to sort of get on the same page with regards to curriculum uh, and calendars that's when you really have these summarification come into the fore as being a sort of standard part of the, the academic year. It's at the end of the 19th century when you have uh, summer as a, a time away from school. Um, so, you know, it's only 130 years old, relatively speaking, this period of summer vacation being a, a standard feature. But it goes along with compulsory education. And it goes along with industrialization and mm. urbanization and all those. Yeah, but it has nothing to do with farming. Right, right, right. That's no. right. So, in fact, this is where we get to the origin of the term vacation as opposed to holiday. Really? Okay. Yeah. I, so, I'm, I'm totally ignorant about this. Well, uh, let, let me enlighten you. <laughs> uh, when the wealthy left their homes mm. and went to the seaside or the mountains or wherever they were going, mm. depending on where the wealthy happened to reside. But if you're talking about wealthy people in urban areas, particularly New York, but mm. not only New York, they vacated them. Oh. And the period of when they left was when they vacated their their urban homes to go to their summer summer places, whether they be great camps in the Adirondacks or of some mansion in Newport, Rhode Island, or whatever. And so it was the period when you vacated your home. Fascinating. Okay. And so the 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 Americans, of course, use holiday in a very different way than the than the British do. Sure. Um, but you know, in the United States, a holiday is a specific day. Um, Whereas British people go on holiday. Go on holiday. But a vacation, it comes from the notion that you're leaving your main place of residence. You're vacating it and going elsewhere. It's a period of vacation. Fascinating. Okay. So, so if we're going to, before the formation of the school system, 
sort of version of summer holiday. Were there other Amer- were there Americans who took summer f- vacations during the colonial period? I mean, wealthy people did. Not, yeah. not, not vacations in the sense that, that we talk about them, sort of package mm. holidays to Mallorca or Florida. Uh, but rather, I mean, so the very wealthy, and you'll know this from mm. your own period and your own work on sure. the environment. Um you know, from the from the south, for example, if they were wealthy enough, would go to Newport. Uh, yeah, sure, from Rhode Island. Place, go to Rhode Island, which of course is lovely in the summertime because it's it's coastal and it's cooler than Charleston, the Carolina Low Country. If you've every got... place is cooler than the Carolina Low Country, so so they did that. Yeah. Sorry, I'll let you jump in in a second. We also see taking the waters becomes a thing, but really mm. for health reasons mm. in the 18th century. So that bathing and swimming, and we might talk about this mm. later when we talk about public beaches, is a relatively newer thing. But people did travel for health reasons. And we've talked about this on previous yeah. episodes in the past. So there was a little bit of that. And of course, we get some very, a very small number of very wealthy Americans who really ape their British counterparts and, and cousins in going on grand tours sure. in Europe, but uh, but that requires a boat and but, a long and time. And it requires, and yeah. I mean, you don't just do, you don't do that for the summer. You no. do that for for a year or something. Mm. So you get a little bit of that, a little bit of that. But you don't get. I mean, Americans participate in recreation, of course, mm. in the 18th century. But you don't get a sustained period mm. of recreating sure, sure. away from work because the the whole notion of work and Home being separate spaces yeah. is really a product of your century. Yeah, to be sure. I mean, one, one Sorry, of the places you were going to say. Something. Well, one of the places that that you really see this phenomenon of, of wealthy uh, people sort of abandoning where, where they are for nine months of the year to go somewhere for the summer uh, is in the town of Flat Rock, North Carolina, which is a beautiful little town in in the mountains. It was called Little Charleston because all the planters from the Low Country in South Carolina would abandon. Their plantations, they'd abandoned Charleston during the summer months, partially because it's really hot there, partially because the disease environment in the low country in the summertime is awful. There's mosquitoes, there's yellow fever, there's malaria, there's all kinds of stuff. Um, and so they went up to Flat Rock, and you have this sort of very strange community of extraordinarily wealthy uh, planters uh, who are, you know, they have their own houses there. They have a church there that's basically for for the low country elite. Uh, of course, they are leaving their enslaved communities behind. You know, so the disease rate among uh, enslaved people during the summer is prodigious, uh, you know, especially in rice country. Um, but you do have some places where, where you have this version of, 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 of summer destination where, where the things are different than, than they are the other nine months. Uh, and places like Flat Rock, but also Bay St. Louis on the Gulf Coast and uh, Biloxi becomes similar to that too. Um, but it is, you know, it's very much built on on class that people who could take, who could afford to do that, which is a, you know, the 1% really. So what we see then, I think, from the 18th century down to the 20th is a gradual expansion. It's part of the democratization of American mm. culture, I suppose. We see, and not without its limitations, mm. of course, but an expansion of who gets to go on summer vacation right. and who this applies to. And so for certainly prior to the Civil War, this is very much an elite activity. Yes. Um, often driven by environmental factors. Um as the country gets wealthier and as you get a growing middle class, you mm. get more people participating in this. And so um, 
I read an essay, a really interesting essay, and I mean to make sure I need to make sure I give appropriate credit uh, in preparation for this episode by a man named um, Tony Paratet. Paratet. Apologies for the pronunciation. Uh, which was where was the birthplace of the American vacation, which appeared in Smithsonian Magazine in, in two, April of 2013. And Paratet argues that we need to, like the summer vacation, kind of in its modern, uh, in our modern understanding, really begins in 1869 with the publication of a book by William H.H. H. Murray, who was a Boston minister. It seems like everybody's a Boston minister in the in the in Boston Europe. had a lot, a lot of ministers. Of, but a lot of ministers who are telling people what to do. And anyway, Murray wrote this book called Adventures in the Wilderness or A Camp Life in the Adirondacks, mm. which was published in 1869, in which he argued that people should go to the Adirondacks in uh, northern New York um, for a vacation. And, and he argued for the, the, the value of recreation. And this became... A bestseller in 1869, and the Adirondacks were were filled with people. He boasted you could get there in 36 hours. Now, of course, we could get to Sydney, Australia, in 36 hours now. But you know, you could get there from New York City or Boston in 36 hours and be in the wilderness. And he gave he presented a guide in this book to to how to recreate in the wilderness Mm. and and survive. And there were 3,000 visitors uh, visited the Adirondacks in the summer of '69. The weather was terrible in the summer of 1869, apparently. It was cold and wet, right. and so a lot of them didn't fare very well. And um, the mosquitoes were terrible and everything else. But it set off a kind of trend mm. of people going. And so we got you get your... You know your Vanderbilts and Rockefellers and Carnegies building these great camps in the in the in the Adirondacks. So, uh, of course, these wealthy families still have their you know the mansions in Newport, Rhode yeah, Island. They, sure, they've got multiple places to go. But this becomes a destination. If you've not been to Newport, Rhode Island, listeners, it's a fascinating place to it go is. to because they have it's they're beach houses, but they're the the fanciest beach houses. Yeah. Ho- <laughs> but they are the fanciest beach houses you've ever seen, and, and sort of the the. Anyway, anyway and they build these great camps in in the Adirondacks, mm. which are not grand like the Breakers Mansions in 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 the in Newport, but they're pretty grand. They're not just you know it's they're not tents. Sure. Uh, and so, um, Paratet makes a persuasive case that the uh, that the the Adirondacks becomes the first vacation Vision, destination right. again for that elite in America. Okay. And what we see in the latter in the latter decades of the of the nineteenth century is other destinations. Vision, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's. You know, a similar sort of impetus, I think, is what leads to the, the creation of the summer camp movement. And, and there's summer camps around the world, but I think the American summer camp has a very particular sort of flavor to it. Sorry, before we do that, David, yes. and I want to hand over to summer camp because you have expertise in this area, which I don't. Which okay, we'll get to. Oh, geez, um, expertise. Um, well, experience. <laughs> there's a more fundamental question than where does, when is summer. Yes. Which is beach or mountains? And by beach versus mountains, this is the choice you have to make. This is this is this is a BuzzFeed quiz. This is really important that you make the right choice here. And by beach, I mean coast and or lakes. Yes, or okay, waterways of some kind. But now you have lakes in the mountains. I understand. I understand. Okay. And by mountains, I mean not just mountains, but if you will, destinations in the interior of the continent. Right. Okay. okay yes. But this is a fundamental choice. I'm not sure that's I've I've done okay, I've done both right okay so I, so I, so I, I and I have enjoyed both and if I had but I have okay listeners I'm rolling my eyes <laughs> give us an answer 
These are not important questions. Um, <laughs> geez. Um, I, I'm going to say I'm gonna, both are good, but I enjoy the beach slightly better because I enjoy seafood in the summertime. And there's, there's better fresh seafood in the summertime at the beach. If you like <laughs> lobster and crabs and those kinds of things. And walking on the beach is nice. Okay. But but mountains are wonderful too. Uh, You're not going to offend mountains. mountains no, no. Okay. Well, I'm going to go. I'm going to be in the mountain. Anyway, well, this is so, a real North Carolina question, yes. isn't it? As somebody as, well as uh, so the for those of you who don't know, my my wife's family is from from the Piedmont, in North Carolina, which is right in the middle, and of the state, uh, which is can be in the summer very oppressively hot and humid, and you do have a choice about going to the the outer banks to the beaches on the on the coast or Myrtle Beach or somewhere like that. Uh, which is cooler because it's on the ocean, or to the mountains. Uh, and my wife's family tends to go to the mountains, uh, partially because they have family connections there. Uh, and the mountains are lovely. Um, so I'm a beach guy. I'm a coast guy. Although I don't like going to the beach. I hate like sitting at the beach, beach. and sunbathing. I oh, find okay, yeah. excruciating and sand gets everywhere, but I love that, being... That is true. That is an experience that people need to have. I like being in coastal communities and reading books that's... and doing stuff like that. I, I, there's a third category, which would be city breaks as well, but that's a more modern... Yes. You know, people going to cities to recreate is a new thing. But I, I, I would, if I had to pick, I'd pick the coast. I've got some material here on, on, on beaches and public beaches, okay. but um, let's talk about summer camps first. Right. So, so uh, Frank, but, but before we get summer camps, you said I have experience. Do you have some summer? Did you go to camp? Never. Not Never. one day. Did your parents hate you? I or could ask. I could you. ask you the same yes. question, David. Nope, I've never went to summer camp. Okay, I never went to summer camp. Yeah, I went uh, to summer a lot, various different summer camps. One of them I went to was the same one that my father had gone to in the um, yeah, many years ago. Did you enjoy it? And, sorry, that's a leading that's question. A leading question. Oh, sorry, there was a leading tone in my question. Just because the kids in my the town I grew up in and went to camp always seemed miserable about it. Ah, there were parts of it I really enjoyed. I mean, there's a very particular. You know, kind of experience that you have in camp uh, that that is that is fascinating. Um, yeah, and and they create interesting memories, and so I'm I'm happy to have those. So before we get to your experience in yes. camp, what's the history of summer camps? So the history of uh, summer camps begins in the 1880s. Um, the first summer camp, the one that we at least gets usually credit for, it, is a camp in New Hampshire that's created by a guy named Ernest Block, who is concerned about what he called the miserable condition of boys in cities. He said, look, they are they are being corrupted by, by, by living in a city, by not being exposed to nature, by, by uh, not having to do work for themselves. And so they said, look, they should come here to New Hampshire. And he had a couple of rules. He said, one, there should be no servants at the camp. He's, he's targeting these wealthy kids. And of course, you know, lots of wealthy families in the end of the 19th century, they all had domestic servants, usually a lot of them. Um, there'll be no servants at the camp. The work will be done by the boys. Uh, and he said, well, we're going to do things. We're going to, boys are going to train to mat at a lake, train to master the lake, and they'd be uh, teaching swimming, diving, boat work, canoeing, and sailing. You know, and so there was a sort of program of, of education. Um and this sort of idea of, of what one historian has called a manufactured wilderness, you know, really took off in the late 19th century. I think it's part of this progressive era response to industrialization. How do you maintain um, 
you know, youthful vigor in the context of a urban industrialized society. Well, you send the kids out and camps for girls begin shortly after the camps for boys. You send them out into to a quote-unquote wild experience, although it's not a wild experience, it's a sort of manufactured wild experience uh, during the summer when they're away from school, in part to get away from the heat, but also for this kind of um, manly virtue. Kind and of stuff. Reverend uh, Murray's advocacy for the Adirondacks is basically an adult version of that. You know, you've right. got to get out of the city and, you know, return to your elemental self. Well, so, you know, sh- the, the early camps are targeting wealthy kids, but there's about the same time there is established in New York City the Fresh Air Fund, uh, which was established in 1887, um, which was targeting poor children in New York City. And it was created by uh, a reverend guy named Willard Parsons, who had just moved to New York City from Pens- rural Pennsylvania, and he sees poor children in the city during the summertime. They've got sort of nothing to occupy themselves with. And, and he sees that as being, you know, socially and, and morally problematic. And so he sets up a system whereby poor kids get sent to go live with rural families for the summer. Uh, and so he sets up programs and ends up in the order of like close to two million kids since then have been sent from the city to rural areas. Eventually, they also send up their own camps uh, for, for, for disadvantaged children uh, from urban spaces to go and get, quote, fresh air. Because we think about what New York City looked like in the late 19th century, you know, the air was polluted, the tenements were rat infested, things were things sanitation wasn't great, uh, so it's an effort to give that rural experience to to urban children, which then you know feeds into this. this so, so summer is for in terms of summer camps, yeah. they begin as these places where elite people can send their kids. Yes. When do we get the kind of mass? market popular experience of summer camp that somehow eluded me but did not elude millions of our yeah uh, countrymen uh, and women i mean i think there's a, a tremendous growth in camps after both the world wars i think there's this correlation between camp experience and military experience um you know there's some interesting cultural things that develop in american camps uh in the late late 19th and early 20th century the correlation between these camps and and Native American themes is prevalent in lots of them. Lots of these camps have names that are either Native American names or pseudo-Native American names. Um, one of the camps I went to had all the cabins were named after different Native American tribes, which I thought was fascinating and weird. Uh, and they had a very strange, I don't know whether the camp is still named the cabins this, wouldn't be surprised if they changed it now. But they had this very strange hierarchy where the the older cabins were were the the more aggressive quote unquote native peoples, whereas the more peaceful native peoples were for the younger uh, campers. Um, obviously, there's a whole hierarchy and, and racialization going on there, but uh, that was true in lots of, of these camp experiences uh, that they sort of create sort of. Um, very strange spaces for, for 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 young people to do things they wouldn't be doing back home, you know, whether that's canoeing or fishing, or uh, you know, engaging in camp war, of which you know, there's different versions of in a variety of places. You missed out, Frank. You didn't. Uh, 
Or not. You well, do, I, I missed out in the sense that I did not go to summer do you, do camp. I do not feel that I'm, you know, mm. I, I do not feel any lingering unhappiness yes. because of that. Do you want to, I mean, without getting personal, I mean, did, what was it like? I, sorry, before we get to that, I, I, we'll get to, don't worry, listeners, we'll get to the confessional part soon. Uh, <laughs> but when do we get, you know, band camp and chess camp and math camp and baseball camp and, and these specialized, specialized camps. camps? That's a good question. So... And did you ever go to those? Yes. Uh, so one of the things you do see fairly early on, once sort of this camp movement takes off in the early part of the 20th century, is you do see a, a specialization of, of camps along certain directions. The first you see is along religious directions. I mean, a lot of these camps have a... Uh, early camps have a sort of default Judeo... Or a default Christian orientation to them, where there is chapel service in camp. Um, the camp, one of the camps I went to, had chapel service. Well, remember the Boy Scouts get their start at about the same, same time. time. And they got a similar, similar vibe. vibe, right? But you have as sort of alternatives to that. You have Catholic camps that are developed. You have Jewish camps that are developed. You have different sort of Bible study camps for different sort of uh, Christian uh, denominations. Um, you do have. Uh, specialized sport camps developing. A lot of these develop in the 1970s. Um, you know, this I went to once, I went to two summers, I think. Baseball camp. Listeners, I was not a good baseball player, loved it very much, was not good at it. Went to camp, got slightly better, but still wasn't good at it. Went to so, what did you do at baseball camp? Did you play baseball all day long? Yes, right? That's what you did, right? And we had like, you know, you they had they had drills and you had teams and you played and 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 the camp I went to, they had a, a major league player come one day each week. Or each week had a player that came. Right. Who was there? Uh, Do you remember? Yeah. Rick Roden came oh, once. Right, I don't okay, remember yeah. Rick Roden. He was a pitcher for the Yankees, um, among other teams. Uh, you know, it was usually a blow. You know, since the camp was in New Jersey, so it was usually, uh, you know, whenever the Yankees or the Mets had a day off, they paid them a couple hundred dollars, whatever, just to come and say hi to the campers. Um Went to sailing camp for a couple of summers, uh, where you did some sailing during half the day. The other day, half of the day, you did swimming and tennis and stuff. Uh, I don't remember crafts. There's lots of arts and crafts in camp. Um, I'm just I'm having flashbacks now to thirty something years ago. Um, so yeah, lots 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 of interesting sort of experiences that I definitely wasn't getting back home. Right, and you were a kid who lived in New York City and went to camp. So that was a kind of archetypal camp experience yes. for the latter part of the 20th century. I would, I, would, you, would you... I, would, I would say so, yes. Right. Oh, I, would, I, mean, I don't know, archetypal, that's, that's putting the weight on it, but yes. Um, I mean, in the, at least the people I went to school with, everybody went to camp in the summer. Really? Yeah, everyone went to camp. Nobody stayed home. They went to different kinds of camps. There were just a hierarchy of things, but yeah, everyone went to camp. Fascinating. But yeah, but yeah. I, I've been lived. I live in a very strange world. Um, so, listeners, you know, we should all sort of, you know, moment of silence for Frank for never getting to go to camp. No, I'm good. I'm yeah, good. I'm totally good. Camp, camp food, <laughs> and you know, all kinds of things, bonfires, there's good stuff. Um, what about road trips? Another road trips may I associate with summer vacation? Should go on any road trips? Not really. I mean, we used to Jeez, go. Your family must have just. Well, liked, first of all, I I must had, have had a very loving family. I had this a, outside we, stimulation. We were a 
road trip unto ourselves, David. Um, I mean, I was one of five kids, okay. and I lived in a suburb, and, and mm. just hung out with kids in the neighborhood all day long during the summer. I mean, I don't want to idealize it too much, but you kind of just went off on your bikes and did whatever you wanted. Like Stranger Things or E.T. You came back for dinner, and okay. that was that. And, and But we went on vacation with our family, so mm. we, we didn't go on, we even did vacate our home. We usually went mm. to the coast, uh, went to the beach. Down the Caper, or uh, I used to go to Hampton Beach, New Hampshire, with my grandparents, mm. uh, which was obvious. I suppose that was like our that was that was for our parents what camp was for your parents in the sense of you know, getting rid of us for a week or two exactly. in the summertime uh, with our grandparents. But but that's what we would do. So we we, we didn't. Um, okay. But so we didn't we didn't say like okay kids we're going to drive to Yellowstone yeah, in the okay. summer. We didn't do that. But people did. Yeah, we, to be we, sure. we did. So there's a there's a fascinating history of summer road trips because I you know summer is the traditional time of year for road trips. There's a very famous well uh, road trip from 1903 by Horatio. Uh, Nelson Jackson, are you familiar with that road trip? I am not. Oh, okay, I so this is, the, this is the, the first road this trip. This is the first, well, it's the first cross-country road trip. So this guy was a, Dr. Jackson was a, was a doctor. He's from Vermont, but he was in California for that uh, winter and, and spring. He's at the university club in May. He's talking with some people. He makes a bet for $50 that he could drive from San Francisco to New York City over the summer. This is 1903, so the, there are cars, but not good ones. This is before the Model T. You know, the car was a, a an experimental vehicle. And when he makes this bet, he and his wife are about to go to are supposed to return to Vermont in the train. Put he puts his wife on the train and says, "I will see you back at home." At that point, he doesn't own a car. He has taken some driving lessons, but not very many. Um, and he has no maps about how to get to New York City because there are no maps across the country for driving in 1903. He gets a guy who's a mechanic. He says, come along with me. These two guys get a two-cylinder, 20-horsepower uh, Winston car, which he calls the Vermont from his home. And the trip is uh, both a media circus and an absolute disaster. They become celebrities before they even sort of really leave San Francisco. But this car breaks down 75 times on their way to New York. They get a bunch of flat tires. They run out of gas multiple times. Basically, everything in the car breaks at least once. They have to pack for this expedition like it's a, like it's a military expedition. They've got like... Because there are no rest stops there's no well, there's, there's no rest stops. There's no, there's no roof on this car, car or nor windshield, right? So they are exposed to everything. So they've got sort of rubber protective suits. They're carrying like axes and shovels. And like a telescope because so they can figure out where they are with the stars. And, and um, they carry guns with them because they don't know what they're going to encounter on the non-existent roads. Um, it took them 63 days uh, to get to New York City. Um, it's not bad, actually. Uh, if you read, there's, a, there's, a, there's a Ken Burns series on the trip. It, these were not leisurely sixty three right, days. Okay. Like these are these are these were pretty rough, um, but I think the idea of a road trip really catches on as something like this is a a way of in a modern world to become a new kind of pioneer to sort of go out into a 
there's another guy who goes on a road trip the same year, not as long of one, who describes it as a, 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 an express straight into the heart of an unknown land of what's like to drive a, a car out into the frontier, whatever it is. Um, and in the 1920s in particular, this idea of becoming, uh, going on a road trip, there was a book that was called The Modern Gypsies about people who went on road trips in automobiles in the 20s, you know, who bring with them tents and duffel bags and just try to drive hither and yon across the United States. It became a real sort of uh, phenomenon. And gas companies catch on to this, people like uh, uh, Gulf Oil, they start to produce maps to help people go on the road trips because, of course, then they can buy more gas. Uh, but they you know, put their they give these away in gas stations to encourage people to drive more. Um, so yeah, you didn't you didn't go on any road trips across the country? So we did that a couple of times with our kids, which is a fascinating experience to to, to drive across the country. Right. No, no okay. uh, in part because once, so we didn't do it as kids. I didn't do it as a kid because we just didn't do that during the summertime. Okay. Um, and when we had kids of our own, we were living here. So we right. went to the U.S. a lot on vacation. To you see didn't relatives. drive across the country to not, Glasgow? We did. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cross-country trip means something very different here. Um, so we just, no. Okay. Never done. Oh, okay. Um, but I'm, yeah, I mean, the road trip is, a, is Summer camps, road trips, these are archetypal. Um, now, what about... I've used archetypal three times, times in this yes. podcast. Well, well, I, I think, but summer is, summer is loaded with these kinds of meanings that people attach to it. That is, it is a time divorced from the rest of the year. Uh, summer jobs. I'm sure you had a summer job. Definitely had summer Perhaps. jobs. But, you know, I was a dishwasher and then worked my way up to... It was really the American dream. So I started as a, as a dishwasher in a, in a kind of greasy spoon place. It wasn't just a summer job, actually. I did it throughout school. And then I worked my way up to being a, a short-order cook. So I'm very good at good, making breakfast. Well, that's, can, that's an that's important a, skill. It is an important skill, and I did that for several I had breakfast years. every day, so that's a big <laughs> And then I became a pizza maker. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, but what did you have for summer jobs? Uh, so I worked at a summer camp. I worked actually at one of the fresh air camps. There was a camp for um, uh, disabled children. I worked, I worked at uh, the fresh air camp, uh, fresh air fund ran, and, and I, I worked there for one summer. Um, I worked as a caddy at a golf course. So it was on Nantucket. So it's everyone who was going to a summer destination, uh, but but I was you know, toting their their golf bags around and finding the balls they hit into the rough. So did you act as a caddy, giving them advice as well? Say, I think you need to use a nine iron here. You know, and... that depended very much on the disposition uh, of the person I was caddying for. Some of them were needed advice and some of them somewhere now else. these are golfers on Nantucket so did you get good tips some of them tipped me very well yes some, some of them did he's not. not allowed to disclose <laughs> listeners he signed a non-disclosure no, well, yeah, there were there were some there were, there were some very wealthy people who tipped very well and some very wealthy people who did not tip very well uh, and some people who were less well off who, who were very generous um, right. you learn a lot about people about how they treat their caddies and how, how they treat their wait people at restaurants and all kinds of things. Uh, but I think that's, a, you know, it's an experience that, you know, is a creation really of the summer break, right? That you have um, young people taking jobs, doing things that are, are, I think, often sort of working class kind of employment, like, you know, being a short order chef, um, 
even kids from sort of middle class and upper class backgrounds doing different kinds of jobs that, that aren't, uh, you know, I think it's a very particular kind of experience as a consequence of that. So what about the beach, David? We haven't yes. really talked this is because beaches are an important part of summer. Beaches are a hugely important part of summer. And do you know when the first public beach in America was created? No, and where? I have no idea. Well, let, let me tell you. Oh, <laughs> Listeners, I learned so much this year. <laughs> it was in 1895, David. Ah, back in the day. Okay. <laughs> Uh, the Massachusetts legislature passed the legislation, the Great and General Court, uh, mm. adopted legislation to make Revere Beach, uh, Revere Beach, <laughs> which is five miles north of Boston, a public beach. So Revere Beach, have you ever been to Revere yeah. Beach? Yeah. It's three miles long. It's quite nice. Mm. It's the first public beach in America. And it stretches from, if you know the Boston area, it's yeah. on the North Shore from Winthrop up to Lynn. Mm. And... It becomes the first public beach in America. Now, seaside holidays had begun in the UK a little bit earlier. Because in almost everything we've talked about today, there are UK parallels because of industrialization and class sure. gratification, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and so what we see in the UK are, um, I think Scarborough in York, Yorkshire is, is the, the first kind of seaside resort in, in the UK in the earlier part of the 19th century. But you see places like Blackpool and Brighton and so on. And Revere Beach mm. becomes the first of what will be like Coney Island and the Jersey Shore and other places around the U.S. Um, where you, but it's a public beach, crucially, and it's meant to be an escape for people from Boston and, and the um, surrounding uh, inner suburbs, if you will, to get access to the sea. Mm. Prior, to, for most of human history the beach and the coast was not necessarily seen as a place to recreate. It was a place to work or a place to avoid because it's dangerous and, sure. and the work around, you know, fishing is a dangerous job, etc. But it's not until the 19th century that this becomes, that this kind of idea, this ideal of, of the, the seashore as a place to go kind of takes off in Europe and the United States. And Revere Beach, there are 300, there were 300 buildings on Revere Beach that had to be cleared. Mm. And they, so, so the beach is always seen as a sort of elemental place that's always been that way, but actually it's not, it's it's not creation, true at all. It's, yeah. a, it's created. And so Charles Elliott is, is a kind of landscape designer who worked with Frederick Law Olmsted, yeah. who, who designs Revere Beach. And Revere Beach becomes the first public beach in the United States. And then it gets a pavilion, not, like, not unlike what in Brighton here in the sure. UK, and a pier and arcades and a roller coaster and the kinds of seaside amusements like that, Coney Island like Coney yeah, Island I mean Coney Island is the kind of, is probably I won't say archetype again, but mm. is, is the kind of best example of this but um, and it's very very I mean, my grandparents who were children of immigrants at that mm. time in, in the Boston area you know, they remember going to Revere Beach like that was where they went to escape the city well, um, and so this becomes a thing and so so uh, going to the beach becomes a thing and, and, and it booms really down through the 30s and 40s mm. And then you get a kind of decline beginning in the 60s where the seaside places are seen, or at least the places like that with amusement arcades mm. and so on, are seen as kind of seedy and disreputable. Uh, it, you get a splintering. So you get the Nantuckets yes. that, you know, and the Hamptons that become really, really upmarket seaside, uh, well, the main coast, sure. etc. But then these, uh, so there's a split and then the kind of more down-market places or something. Well, one of the interesting things to thinking about all of these things we've been talking about is, you know, thinking about the importance of, of the, the 1890s, about when these things seem to come to the fruition, whether that's summer vacation for schools, public beaches, summer camps. 
It's also the decade in which segregation really comes to the fore and has sort of created the sort of Jim Crow laws, not only in the South, but across the country. And some of these public accommodations that we're talking about, like public beaches, sometimes they're public beaches for white people, that they were, you know, they were often either restricted for white uh, people, or they would have a, a, a separate section of the beach, and usually the less nice section of the beach that would be restricted for, for African Americans. Uh, and, the, you know, some of the fights during um, the long civil rights movement are over, you know, access to these public spaces, whether that's, you know, beaches, um, you know, and they have swim-ins and where you have wade-ins where you have, in addition to sort of having sit-ins, you have um, people trying to integrate beaches. Yeah, I mean, the 1919 Chicago race riot, right. in which 38 people are killed over several days, begins when a young black boy allegedly swam in the right, white part of Lake Michigan. Exactly, uh, right. You know, crossed the line on a segregated beach. Um, and, you know, and you find the same thing with public swimming pools and all these other kinds of things that we... Um, associated with summer. And I'm you know, thinking about road trips, obviously, African-Americans have a very different experience going on, you know, going on these road trips. The famous sort of Green Book, which has gotten uh, more and more attention in recent years, in part because of a mediocre movie, but also in part because of um, some really good scholarship on it. You know, the Green Book was a, a tool that African-Americans used to help them make those road trips safely, where they could know where they could go and get a meal and, and get a place to, to sleep at night safely uh, in strange locations. So yes. you know, there are all these kinds of ways in which these elements are, are shaped by all the other things that they are in American history by class and by, by race. Yes. Well, before our last drops, we should acknowledge it because you're about to leave for the United States. Yes. So I think we'll be taking a summer vacation we'll be taking for a few summer weeks. Break, yes. <laughs> but we will be back soon. Yes, we will. So, so uh, no. So, what's your last drop? Last drops. Well, so uh, earlier this week we had graduation. You know, graduation season here lasts for for a, a couple of weeks here at the University of Edinburgh. But uh, we had our departmental graduation on um, I guess on Monday, uh, and I was just I want to shout out to our students who graduated. We had you know PhD students graduate, master students graduate. Uh, I want to shout out to two of our online. Uh, MSC students who graduated, Chris and David, who both listen to the show, I think, regularly. Uh, so congratulations to them and obviously all of our undergraduates who, who graduated this week. It's really great to see all their smiling faces at graduation. Um, here, here. And, yes. and, and congratulations to you because you were the parent of a graduate this yes, week. Yes, well, I've had my second child graduate from the University of Edinburgh. And uh, man, my son graduated uh, with a degree in artificial intelligence and mathematics. So I got to go to two graduation ceremonies on the same day, which is which was was, was uh, fun, although it was quite hot. It it's, was very summer. It's been pretty warm here, yeah. certainly by our standards. To be sure. Right, what you got, uh, I want to give a, a shout-out to the people who work at Monticello, which, as listeners will know, is a place I know well. Uh, it's their turn to be on the hot seat of the culture war because... There was an article in the New York Post last weekend. We will not link to this because yeah. I don't think we should give it any attention. That was and a bit on Fox News. Well, I think. Yeah, yeah. I was going to. All right. Thank you, David. 
Yeah. Uh, there was an article in the New York Post which basically took some negative Facebook posts from visitors who were unhappy with their visits to Monticello uh, and and uh, spun that out into a column about wokeness taking over Monticello. And then, as you said, got picked up by Fox News. And since then, there have been a, this has run and run over the past few days. It'll die down eventually. But uh, the people who work at Monticello who actually do some very good work, public history is really hard to do. And they do a pretty, they do a very good job of trying to both present Jefferson and his achievements, and the fact that this is a site where hundreds of people were enslaved mm. on the tours and and in presenting that in the public. And it's hard, it's hard, and they don't always get it right. I'm sure, but I, I, I they're 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 getting a lot of public abuse, much of it ginned up from people who I think are not actually acting in good faith and aren't really concerned about public history in any way. Uh, and I imagine they're having a difficult few weeks, and so I just want to give a shout-out to the docents and the other people who work at Monticello, who I think do very good work yeah. um, and, and are probably getting a lot of abuse. Yeah, the yeah they've done, the past 30 years, really, they've done a remarkable work in, in changing the kind of public presentation uh, they should be, be praised for, for all of that, that work that they've done. That's right. I've gone on the tour probably dozens of times in the past 25 years, and it has changed considerably and changed for the better. Um, but yeah so All right. anyway I just want to give credit to the people solidarity with people yeah, at Marcello and, yeah. and happy summer everybody. and happy summer to you David cheers The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes Stitcher and Podbean you can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 